What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the first episode of the Long Away Debut of the Shoe Show. I'm your host, Shoes, and today we got a lot of stuff planned for today. We're going to get into a lot of different topics. We're going to get into the world of sports. We're going to be talking about a few different upcoming events in the NBA football world. Also, we're going to be getting into super team discussion. We're going to be getting into the college realignment, but also in about t- 10 minutes, we're going to have a special guest joining us, none other than Brooklyn Nets guard Cam Thomas. He's one of the core young pieces for the Brooklyn Nets, and he's one of the elite young bucket getters in all the NBA. He's going to be one of the perfect guests to kick off this first episode of the Shoe Show. So we'll be intriguing. We're getting into a lot of intriguing topics with him. And as I mentioned, I'm also going to give you guys some of the headlines heading into today. I'm also going to be getting into, like I said, free agency discussions in the NFL, getting into the season, trades, all these different aspects. But before we officially dive into these hot topics, I do want to ground ourselves in today's verse of the day which comes from the book of Luke, chapter 9, verse 23. And it reads, Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. As I start this next chapter, I want to make sure that the foundation is properly laid. As I mentioned throughout my return video, my life has drastically changed over the course of the past year. I am a follower of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and I plan on doing so with everything I can for the remainder of my life. Therefore, the only way to really necessarily do that, I've learned, is you have to deny your old self, lose my old self. I need to fully pick up my cross and follow Jesus every day of my life, to the best of my ability, at least. While I might not be perfect, the goal is to become a little bit more like Jesus every day. So that is what Luke chapter 9, verse 23 means to me. And also, that is today's verse of the day segment. Now, every show, I'll make sure to kick off with a new verse of the day. So I do look forward to that every episode. With the foundation laid now, I want to jump into the very first episode of the shoe show. We'll be engaging, as I mentioned, in a conversation with Cam Thomas. We'll be discussing college realignment as well as super team. So I appreciate you guys all for joining me today. And so let's get right in, into this now. So a few of the headlines heading into this day is that there's been a lot of big things going on. Obviously, NFL is just around the corner. We're about back into it now. And the crazy thing about that is that we have preseason games already on the way. Hard Knocks debuted last night. We have preseason games going on this week and weekend and all that different stuff going on. But basketball is still in the mix of stuff happening right now. And so that is what I do want to get into right now because we saw Team USA play, yes, two days ago now. And he had quite, they had quite the display. Obviously, the playing against Puerto Rico was not necessarily the biggest competition for them. However, we did get to see lots of glimpses of the team. We got to see lots of glimpses of what they could be capable of going forward. So, we should be looking forward to that. They have an expedition game against Luka Doncic in Slovenia coming up this weekend. A few more expedition games leading up to the World Cup. So that is something to look forward to. There's a lot of talent. Anthony Edwards is on that team. Nicole Bridges, Cam Johnson. They've got a lot of different pieces. Brandon Ingram's a part of that team. And so it'll be interesting to see how they perform. Competition teams, obviously Luka Doncic is never going to be an easy opponent. You've also got a lot of different teams going to be going up against when it comes to Australia. It's going to be competitive. Canada looks legit. So we'll see how they hold up when they play a lot of these other teams. And, and it might not even necessarily mean what happens in the expedition games. Remember, those are expedition. They don't count. It's essentially just a practice game for those teams. So that's what we're going to be looking forward to. It should be a lot of fun. Lots of exciting things are going to continue to happen on that landscape. Another aspect is that Josh Hart did, ex- did agree to an extension with the New York Knicks. He's going to be on a two-year on a four-year, $81 million deal, excuse me, according to Woj. He just landed that extension today. He also is a part of that Team USA squad, so he is there. As for NFL free agency news, Kareem Hunt, he could be on the way to the Colts. He is having a visit right there now with them. He also visited the New Orleans Saints a couple of days ago, so we'll see exactly how this all unfolds. It should be exciting, most definitely. 
Now, with that being said, though, there's going to be a lot of topics we're going to get into. College realignment is only just beginning. Tons of moves have been going down on that aspect. We see Washington, Oregon now joining the Big Ten as well, obviously joining the movement of UCLA and USC also going out there. As for the Big 12, they pull in their slew of Pac-12 teams, bring in Arizona State, Arizona, and Utah. They're also obviously added on Colorado a little bit as well. So that t- that conference looking loaded. SEC has made their moves of Texas and Oklahoma. ACC has rumors of having what they're going to be having. So we're going to dive into a lot more of that after the interview with Cam Thomas. We have a very special guest joining me today. He's been a player that I've been super high on since high school. When I first started covering the game of high school basketball, at least, he was up in his junior season going to Oak Hill. And ever since then, I've been high on his game since his Oak Hill years all the way to his single season out at LSU. He's now been in the NBA for a couple of years with Brooklyn Nets. He's one of the most prolific young bucket getters in all the NBA, and that's Brooklyn Nets guard Cam Thomas. Cam, how you doing today, man? Not much, man. So first and foremost, you're in the middle of an offseason now, and when I think about it, I mean, this is a lot different situation the past couple of years. The first two years, you know, you had summer league, rookie adjustment season, also you're heading into a team that a lot of people kind of perceived as a championship team. So you had a lot of veterans in front of you. You had Kyrie Irving, you had James Harden the first year. Going into this offseason, is there any difference for you mentality-wise or the way you're approaching it? Uh, no, not really. Just still approaching the same way. Uh, just putting my head down, working, trying to get better as much as I can, working on my body so I can be in great shape. You know, just approaching every offseason the, the way I've been approaching it. So you look at this team, and obviously Kyrie Irving is not the addition. We've got to see about a half of the season, but there is – has to be at least in some sense you see you see Kyrie Irving not there. That's a Hall of Fame first bow type of guy, James Harden. So sure. on paper, at least, there's a little bit more of an opportunity for yourself now. You head into the year, and obviously, no disrespect to Spencer Dinwiddie. He's a great player and whatnot, but there's more opportunity, at least for minutes. You're also heading into year three for yourself now. Yeah. What are your expectations now as you head into year three for yourself? Yeah, really just, just you know, just like I said, just keep improving. Um, I don't really have no expectations because – you know, you never know what can happen in the season. So I just try to keep my head down and then, and try to play the best as I can because, you know, I feel like me playing the best as I can is, is good enough. So I just want to keep my head down, keep working, keep improving every day as a person and player. Well, there is one thing I learned, and I was not quite familiar with this before. I did some research a little bit more on yourself. But you are obviously born or you've been raised in America now, but you were born in Japan. So yeah. take us through that a little bit. Yeah, that's just uh, family, family being the military, you know, they got stationed over there. So I, I was born over there. I was only there for like a year. I don't really remember much about it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's just a, you know, a little good story, a good little story. Just me being over there for a year, you know, when I was first born. One interesting thing that a lot of players we see doing now is we know it's World Cup time. I know you got two teammates out there currently playing for Team USA, but there's been a lot of guys that if their parents or their grandparents or someone, they somehow get citizenship to play for another country. They're trying to play for them in the World Cup or yeah. the Olympics. You, I have to imagine there's a, at least an opportunity or way to do that through Japan. Has that been something they've approached you about? Have you had any interest in that? Could we ever possibly see you suit up for Team Japan one day? Uh, honestly, I haven't. I have been a little interested in it. Um, I think I think my team has looked into it. Um, I don't really know the details about it, but I think my team has looked into it. But you know, either it's USA or Japan. You know, maybe one of these years in my career, I'm looking to play. You know, in the World Cup, Olympics, whatever. So you know, I just want to. I just want to you know have that door open for either team. Honestly, so you know, I just want to keep it keep it going. So the Olympics are next year, and then I know it have to be a two or three year gap until the World Cup comes up again. 
is next year a possibility or do you think you're kind of just staying locked in for now on this and maybe later on in your career will that be five years from now four years from now you could consider that opportunity then yeah yeah honestly right now i'm not really interested in playing you know in the world cup olympics whatever that mm -hmm. is right now maybe like you said four or five years down the line mm -hmm. i'll be more interested but right now i'm just trying to focus on you know the nba portion trying to solidify my career there first and then and then worry about the other stuff so i just want to take it one step at a time take one one you know one go at a time for myself an aspect about your game that is the reason you would even have an opportunity to play for any of those teams would be because you are a great player but specifically we know you're a bucket getter i mentioned you go through every level of your career that has never sure. changed obviously roles and stuff has changed but when you get on a court you get the ball in your hands you've got buckets from your freshman season all the way to Oak Hill, becoming the all-time leading scorer out there at a program that, for people that aren't familiar with that, Kevin Durant yeah. played there, Michael Beasley, Brandon Jennings, the list goes on, Carmelo Anthony played the Jerry Stackhouse. You're their all-time leading scorer and you did so in only two years. You go to LSU and you yeah. probably would have broke some type of records out there, but you only spent one year and you broke freshman records there. You go to Brooklyn, obviously the minutes hasn't necessarily been there, but as we saw, when you did get minutes, three straight games, youngest player ever to do so, 40-plus in each one of those. Yeah. When did this bucket getting mentality come to you? Was that something you truly were born with? Or when did you start realizing that you're capable of going into a game and getting buckets at the level in which you do? I've always been kind of born with getting buckets, really. Um, mm -hmm. It's just my I just that I, I gained the mentality, you know, the, the killer mentality. Everybody talks about the killer, killer cam mentality, killer mentality to keep mm -hmm. like keep scoring, keep going. Because because when I was younger, I'll be, I'm like the type of guy to score 20 and I try to back off and let my let everybody else do theirs. And then, you know, I had people in my corner like, no, I have to keep going. You got to keep, you know, keep killing, keep going. So I was like, yeah, I got to get that mentality because you need that mentality when you, you know, go through high school, college, AAU, and, and now in the NBA, you got to have that mentality. So I really, I really like develop my mentality, but I always had the ability to get buckets. Do you recall when that mentality first came to you? So like, if we go back, if it was, I mean, I've seen you since high school ball, so I know you were bucket yeah. freshman year, but yeah, yeah. I wasn't quite familiar or anything like that when you're in middle school. So do you remember yeah, yeah. like, when that day came, were you like a young guy playing AAU in elementary, middle school? Or when did that really, do you kind of recall like, okay, I know I'm a bucket getter now? Yeah, I really, really eighth grade, really eighth grade. That's when I really knew that like, oh, yeah, I'm a bucket getter and I got to have the mentality to be a bucket getter every day and every game I play in. You know, and then from eighth grade on, I just really just kept, kept going and just kept, you know, working on my craft and trying to find different ways to be a better bucket getter than I already was. And I just wanted to keep working on it. You look at all your scoring records or achievements, whether that be Oak Hill's all-time leading score that I mentioned, the great LSU season as a freshman record setter in LSU, at the in the SEC. Your yeah. your three-game run at the big with the Brooklyn Nets. What scoring record or achievement milestone, whatever you want to call it, would you say means the most to you, or is the craziest to you? Uh, obviously the forty-point games is up there. You know, you can't you can't beat that. <laughs> That's three in a row. That's, you're in history in the NBA for that. But honestly, just honestly, just my old kill. I think my old kill is the most impressive to me because you know I was there two years. Most people say you know only guys that played two years, but you know in my in my defense, I'm like if you know Steve, Coach Steve, you know shout out Coach Steve Smith. Most mm -hmm. of those juniors don't most juniors don't really play that you know that that kind of minutes and get that kind of opportunity to score their junior year. So you know I feel like that's just a testament to me and my ability and the and the confidence he had in me as a player. So I feel like just me having. You know, that, that record at Oak Hill, that's, that's really, like, up there for me, top one, for sure. This is a story I remember, and then I brought it, saw it again when I was doing some research, but when you were going as a junior, as you mentioned, especially at the prep school levels in a school like Oak Hill or maybe ING Montverde, as you said, guys that are not seniors don't necessarily get a lot of minutes, or at least a lot, the ball in the hands a lot. 
You yeah, went so. out there and you joined a team with a few guys that people are familiar with. One guy specifically, though, Cole Anthony. He's a guy that at that point in time was debatably, if not the number one player in the country. That right, was right. his team. And and I read a story that you got to a point in the season where Cole said, you know what, I'm going to give the ball over to Cam. Now, I'm still going to be part of this team. I'm still going to do my thing. However, mm-hmm. for us to win, Cole, Cam's going to have the ball in his hands. So can you take us through that? Was that a conversation that he had with Coach Smith and that you were aware of? Or just take us through that. I feel like I feel like we had a um, conversation before, like our season even got started. We was playing the preseason games and some of the games at the beginning. Uh, mm-hmm. He seen he seen how talented I was and how great I could score. And then you know that year he was he was more focused on trying to get the triple doubles and just showing everybody that he's a all around point guard. You know, going coming into the league, going to you know UNC, showing he could um, be that all around point guard who can get triple doubles, defend, you know, score score two rebounds, just everything. So I feel like that that was really like a good match. For me to get my name out there so that I really I get buckets on any level, you know, against anybody and then him showing his ability to play all around. So I feel like um, we I feel like we kind of established that at, at the very beginning, but it just came out later on during the middle of the year, you know, about how, you know, I guess he deferred to me offensively because, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I, I was the leading scorer on the team and then he was he was trying to be the true point guard on the team. So I feel like it really just worked out both ways for us. That is a mentality that is kind of rare for high school guys. I think when you talk about high schoolers, you know, a lot of guys just don't necessarily understand the full game yet. It's There's so much pressure on high schoolers, and it just keeps coming more and more. When you talk about overtime stuff, you talk about the rankings, it's really a mentality that I think is unfortunate aspect for some guys where it's got to be all about yourself. Not a lot of guys like to take that sacrifice. So when you see a guy of Cole's caliber decide to take a backseat role in a sense, what did you learn from that? Uh, Just... I mean, I, I really learned that it's just him as a person, really. He was all about winning that year. He was all about winning. He was all about, you know, doing whatever for the team to win. Because that's, you know, just how everybody say the team wins, everybody wins. So it's just, mm-hmm. I feel like that's just a testament to him. And I, you know, and honestly, he's really a big part in me being the five-star player that I became at Oak Hill, getting ranked high, playing all the big-time games, just just because he um sacrificed his scoring. Because I think in the EYBL that way, I mean, the EYBL that year, mm-hmm. he was the leading scorer. Yep. And I was like, and I was like fourth or fifth or something like that. And then I was average 25, 30, you know, I've been cool with it, but he, but he wanted to take a best seat to me offensively and let me do the scoring and he can do the other things for the team. So that, that was just a huge testament to him as a person and player. So I can't thank him enough for that. Before you went to Oak Hill, you did a unique thing as well. And, and I know I read about it too, that you and your mom decided to set out your sophomore year. I know there was some kind of dispute or whatever with the coaching coaches or whatever. But that's not a thing that typically is done, at least in this era. We see a lot of people say, you know what, we need to be playing basketball 24-7, games all the time. There's no sitting out. And you decided to say, you know what, we're going to take a backseat for a season. I'm just going to work on my game, practice. What led to that decision and, and how much did that end up benefiting you long term? Yeah, uh, what really led to it was just that I knew that I was playing AAU, so I knew that I still had basketball to play. I didn't take the entire year off, so I just wanted to, um, you know, whatever happened with my high school, you know, it is what it is, but I just wanted to, um, you know, keep working on my game, you know, just work on everything, get stronger, and just get ready for the UIBL because I was 16, well, yeah, 16 playing mm-hmm. up to the 17th that year, so I had to, um, you know, just be ready for that because that's where the college coach is everything. And 17, the UIBL is, is like no other, so you, know, you got to be ready. So I knew, so I knew I, I had that in my back pocket, and then honestly, just I mean, it really benefited me just the way I the way I work now, just knowing how how to get ready for 
a certain season, knowing when to prepare, when to do certain stuff. My routine, I feel like that really helped me out a lot, for sure. So you look at all the different levels in which you've been getting buckets. And we talk about at Oak Hill, you play constantly high-level prep schools, top players. You go to college, same thing. EYBL, same thing. NBA. As I mentioned, you scored at a high level each and every single stage. At each level, though, who would you say was the best defender? Now, obviously, you still put up buckets, and it didn't necessarily matter to you. But who was the toughest defender at the high school level, the college level, and now the NBA level for you? Um, honestly, for me personally, coming up through, it was more like the team defenses. It wasn't out because in high school, AAU and all that, I never really saw just one-on-one, one-on-one anymore. So I feel like I was really just, you know, you know, I mean, it's a compliment to me, but I never really had like a one-on-one high school every time in, um, in high school, AAU, and college. So it was more like the team defenses. So, I mean, everybody game plan for me. So, that was really it. The NBA, uh, you know, I really play much. But when I do play, you know, when I, when I get, like, a lot of minutes. Um, mm-hmm. That's a good question. Um, I feel like the Bulls, the Bulls play good defense on me. When I, when I had the three 40-point games and then we had that fourth game, and I only had 20 because I was struggling a little bit. I feel like they mm-hmm. played good defense on me that game. Uh, Pat Williams, Caruso, all those guys played they pretty solid defense on me that game. So, I mean, you know, it is what it is. During that streak, you had 40 points against the Phoenix Suns. And in that game was soon to be your future teammate, Michael Bridges. He's obviously regarded, and rightfully so, as one of the best 3 and D guys. Have you guys gone back and forth about that at all, talking about how you got 40 points on him yet? Oh, no, no, not at all. <laughs> you know, that was just, you know, just me being locked in on mm-hmm. my on my streak. And then, you know, I, I never would have thought you would have got traded there, but it was crazy. You know, I was like, oh, and we just played them like mm-hmm. two days ago. <laughs> we just played them like two days ago. And then they and then my teammates now. But no, I, we haven't really talked about it. You mm-hmm. know, obviously, you know, I'm pretty sure that they uh, respected it, respected my game after that. So it was really just, you know, a blessing in disguise, really. So he was on the Paul George podcast about a week or two ago, and, and those two were both chopping up about you. They got into your bucket-getting ability, your game, and how much they like about you. And But McCall brought up an interesting part because he discussed that when you go through practice, those shots that you shoot in games, you're practicing them all. And you're, not every single shot you shoot is the same. I mean, you switch it up a lot. You've got all kinds of different stuff in your bag. Mm-hmm. When you talk about practicing and you're working on these shots, and when we do see in a game, it's like, why is he shooting that? How is he capable of getting that off? Take us through your practice mentality. Like, what is there on the table for you? Like, when you get into a gym, where do you draw the line in terms of what you want to do, what you're capable of doing, and just how much creativity you're going to allow yourself to get out there and do? Yeah, um, just me coming up through the, you know, my own career, I really try to be as creative as possible because mm-hmm. really um, you're not really going to have the same look every time because a lot of guys and a lot of coaches watch film on you and know, like, your tendencies, what you're capable of. So me personally, I just try to mix it up so nobody really knows, like, oh, when he's pulling up or, like, or, or he, like, raises up from this shot pocket so we can be on there in his shot pocket. So I just try to mix it up as much as possible. And then just the aspect of me working on it, I really got that from my mom because, you know, we, um, well, when well when I was younger, she'll be like, you know, if you're not going to work on it, don't do it in a game. So I was like, all right, I just got to work on it here and I can do it in the game. So I really just try to work on it as much as possible. And once it gets consistent for me to make it over and over, whatever it is, Cross my body like this, you know, I'm over my head, whatever it is, somebody on me, draped on me. I just try to make it as much as possible. So once it gets consistent in the gym, and then I try in the game. So if you see me trying the game, that means I worked on it and it's consistent. So I feel like I can make it. 
there's a lot of different guys that you could say you take pieces from just from your scoring ability at least but i know there's one guy above everyone else that you have been very vocal about and when anytime you look up anything about yourself everyone talks about your love for kobe bryant so mm-hmm. you gotta take us to that love obviously you're not the only guy that loves him but i feel like there's a little bit different kind of following in love and passion for kobe and his game and who he was in you so when did you really start to fall in love with his game for sure um I really, I really don't. I mean, I, I guess I fell in love when I was younger, but mm-hmm. I really know, like, when I was actually watching, watching the game and understanding the game and what was going on was in two thousand eight, uh, his um MVP season in two thousand eight. Mm-hmm. So that's when I really started to understand basketball, know what he was doing, try to copy him, and I wanted to be like him, honestly. So I feel like from that point on, that's when my love for Kobe and trying to get to the NBA level really started. So really, just um, really just that, and then. You know, his moves, his uh, mentality, everything. Even at that young age, I was trying to do all his mannerisms and stuff, you know, mm-hmm. same same gear he had on. Like, it was just everything. So, so you know, he's, he's really a big influence on why I wanted to become an NBA player. If you could pick the biggest thing that you've taken away from him, rather that be his mentality, a move, whatever it might be, what would you say that is? Just the um, mentality, really. Just the mentality. Just um, – I mean, with anything, where it's media on you, you don't pay no mind, you keep going because, you know, the media don't see you working on it. And, you know, the media don't really know, like, what you're going through or none. So, like, and, like, sometimes media just don't know what's going on. You're just, like, putting stuff out just so they can have something out. So I really learned that from them. Just don't pay nothing like that in your mind. Then, obviously, just just having that mentality to um keep going. You know, he, he never had a mentality to settle. And that's really the main thing that I really got from him. Just don't settle for nothing. You know, don't settle less than what you are capable of giving. That's really the main thing for me. There is a funny aspect about you, and that's the fact that I don't think you necessarily even tried to, but there's been countless times in your brief NBA career already that you've made it viral. You've made memes of yourself, whatever it might be, one of which was in the midst of that 40-point streak. You obviously broke LeBron's record, and you made your comments saying about, well, I'm not really a LeBron guy. I'm a Kobe guy. (laughs) I don't think you even intended that to go viral. Now you have that. No, not at all. (laughs) There's your Steve Nash moment during the summer league. We know that aspect. I think that was after the second year. You had mm-hmm. a fun, obviously, at one point. You have your branding that you've now done. Mm-hmm. When you look at all these, like, do you ever intend to expect something to go viral or be funny? Or does you just, just end up happening? And then by the time you get back on your phone, you're like, oh, this already just went down. Dang. Bro, that's crazy. No, <laughs> not at all. No, because even with my brand, like, when when a random person asks me, like, like cause, because, it, cause, you know, random people always see, like, oh, he's so serious. He's so serious. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, bro. And, and, and then I say it, I say it all the time. Like I say it no matter what. And mm-hmm. I said it at one time and it blew up. And I was just like, I mean, I said it, I've been saying it every time. Like somebody asked me that. So it didn't, that, so, you know, that blew up. And then the Kobe thing, I'm, I was just being honest. I mean, it's, it's no disrespect to LeBron. I, I love, yeah. love looking at LeBron playing stuff like that. You know, he's done a lot for the game and stuff. But it's just me being a fan of basketball, me growing up, growing up with Kobe, just, you know, my love for Kobe is like unmatched. So, you know, really that part. So really everything I say, I'm just like, I mean, I'm not really attending go viral. I'm just speaking what's on my mind at that point. So, you know, if it goes viral, it goes viral. Which one of the things that's happened so far, maybe even one that I've not listed yet, was the most surprising to you? Like, by the time you got on your phone, maybe even someone else came and told you about it, you were like, dang, that really went viral? Uh, The branding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the brand, my brand, honestly. I I was never expecting to go viral. Because I always said it. I always said the same thing. No matter what <laughs> somebody asked me, that, I always said it. And that went viral before. And then that one particular day, I woke up and then the next, the very next day or a few hours later, I don't really remember because we was playing Philly when I said it, he was playing Philly. 
And then when I said it, it just, it took off. And I was like, oh, man, I, I was not expecting that at all. <laughs> there is another aspect about you that I've always appreciated. And that's been, I don't know if it necessarily would be an underdog mentality because it's not like you were per se a guy that was not a ranked player and you had a low major and you made your way to the NBA. But at the same point, I feel like you've been disrespected a lot throughout your career. We go all the way down to college and you were the very first year, like I said, covering the McDonald's American and whatnot. You didn't make that. And that was something that I was vocal about. I was shocked. From that point on, I have not really respected the McDonald's All-American yeah. process just because we talk about your resume. All-time leader, leading scorer at Oak Hill, and they don't put you on a was a 24-man roster. That was shocking to me. You All go right. out to LSU, lead the SEC in scoring, most points in SEC in, what was it, 40-some years. You do incredible out there. And obviously, you still were a first-round pick, but I had you graded as a top-10 player in the class. And so you fall out to the Brooklyn Nets at 27, I believe. Then you also talk about the NBA, and you shown that you're capable of playing in the summer league. You've shown you're capable of playing at the NBA level. The minutes have fluctuated a little bit. So has all those things inspired you, motivated you, or what is necessarily your mentality when it comes to a lot of those aspects? Uh, just keep having a chip on my shoulder. Just keep just staying motivated, uh, not really getting too tied into that. Um, obviously, with, with the McDonald's thing, I was – what happened? I'm good. I'm good. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so, so obviously with the uh, McDonald's thing, I was uh, I, I was pretty upset the first day because obviously I worked hard and I felt like I was real deserving of a spot. But you know we had a game I think the next day or two, so I, I, that was great for my mind. I just wanted to show, and I just wanted to go out there and show that you know they they made a mistake. And then I think I had like 30, 35 or thirty thirty something the first game. Then I had like fifty one the second game. That's because mm -hmm. um, coach because coach you know the coach left me in longer. And then really just, you know, the LSU thing, I felt like I was real deserving of player of the year, freshman of the year, whatever. But, you know, it is what it is. I guess it was just, you know, situation, team winning or something like that. I feel like, but, you know, think about that, we was winning. It was like third in the conference and we had a great record. So, yeah. you know, I, I don't really know really why, you know, I feel like it's a lot of disrespect. But, you know, I just keep my head down, keep working because, you know, the big thing I say all the time is that my peers know how talented I am and what I bring to the table. And they respect my game, honestly. So. That's really the main thing that I care about. And that's a great point because I mentioned a little bit earlier, Paul George was raving about your game. Nicole Bridges raved about your game. Kevin Garnett has raved about your game. The list goes on. So when you do get the attention from other people and they realize that, man, this kick and play, he's, he's a legit player, what kind of confidence or does that even provide any confidence or kind of assertion about how good you are capable of being and just your level of play? No, it's just um, it's just like, a, you know, I wouldn't say a pat on the back, but it's like it's like a, you know, a sign of like, you know, my work is paying off and that my peers at this level see what I'm capable of and, re and they respect my game being so young, you know, going to my mm -hmm. third year, last year being my second year. And they were saying how talented I am, how much of a bugger I am at only 21 years old, my second year in the league. And, you know, those are like great players like KG, Hall of Fame player, uh, yep. Paul George, Hall of Fame player, uh, you know, Mikel coming to his own, being a star on our team. And then, you know, and then like for us to have the two guys, you know, Take me under the wing, KD, Kyrie, you know, them to respect my game and stuff. So that's really, you know, I'd probably say the biggest thing for me is as long as my peers respect me at this level, that's all I care about. You know, that's like a big, a big sign of like, you know, your work is paying off. And that's the crazy thing because you talk about going in there to a Brooklyn team when you got drafted, this was a team that was the favorite to win a championship. And that was the one thing. At first, when I was like, man, he's falling this far down. That's crazy. It's shocking to me. But then I looked at the team you're going yeah. to, and I'm like, well, I know he's a bucket kid. Now he's going to be able to be mentored by 
debatably three of the best scores, offensive players, players of all time, period. Mm-hmm. And Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, James Harden. So when you were going through that draft, and I have to imagine that still getting drafted was a huge experience. That was amazing yeah. for yourself. Yeah. I'm sure you probably want to go a little bit higher too. But still, when you mm-hmm. sat back, you're like, hold up, I'm going to Brooklyn. I got these guys I'm going to go learn from. I have a chance to potentially compete for a championship. What went through your mind at that point? Yeah, obviously, um, I I um, expected me, I, you know, I expected to go way higher than what I did. So I feel like that was really like a big slide for me in the draft. You know, I don't know what happened or anything like that. I, just, I, was, I wasn't even, I, I could, because I was expecting to go way higher than that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you sit back, evaluate and just, you know, look at the situation, I was like, oh, this is a great situation, too, because you can learn from those guys. Because, you know, they have a lot of knowledge they give to me being a rookie, you know, and, and I got like, a lot of years left in this game to give. So them passing their knowledge down to me, you know, is a really big thing for me. And I can't thank them enough for that. And I just want to put it to use, you know, in these years. So, you know, I can't thank those guys enough. And those are my brothers. On draft night, you mentioned that you thought you were going to go a lot higher. As I mentioned, I had you going, I think I had you at eight or nine when I had my top 10 board. When you talk about that night, did you have any expectation of possibly going down? Like maybe even during the draft or somewhat, did your agent or someone can kind of tell you, okay, we think this could happen? Or where were you kind of expecting or thinking you might be landing at night? Uh, I kind of had the, I kind of had the impression that I was going to go between 11 and 15. Well, no, mm-hmm. my bad, 11 and 20 to the Lakers. Mm-hmm. At 20, what was probably like the last spot I was told. And then, you know, they uh, traded their pick for Russ. So that was like a big thing. I was like, oh, man. Because, you know, the thing, um, because the thing with Brooklyn, um, they seen me work out in L.A. They seen me work out in L.A. And I and I interviewed with them the day before or like two days before, you know, the draft. So it was just, you know, just touching up me and everybody. Because I, I, I was because I, I, honestly, I wasn't expecting to get picked there. Honestly, I wasn't even expecting to pick there. I was expecting to be no later than 20 to the Lakers mm-hmm. from what from what I was told. So um, that's really the main thing. That's interesting because I've heard draft stories from a few other guys. I think Karis had a similar story in terms of when he went out there, he was sliding. Jared Allen's another guy, Claxton. And a lot of those guys, they didn't get meetings with the Brooklyn Nets or at least seriously consider yeah. them until the day before that morning, even though I think it was one of those guys' stories. And that's just yeah. kind of show. I mean, Sean Marks knows how to identify talent in the draft. He's done an incredible job. I mean, when he took over the Brooklyn Nets, that was a dumpster fire of a team at that point in time. And he rebuilt yeah. them to where they are. He's landed so many guys that – should have been when we redo a draft. You see, whenever when people redo those drafts, we see these guys flying up the boards again. You're yeah, one of those yeah. guys now in that situation. Yeah, so sure. when you just talk about a guy like Sean Marks, take us through your guys' relationship. How close are you guys? How often do you guys talk? What's it like just being around him? Yeah, I feel like it's a good relationship. Uh, he knows talent. You know, that's the main thing. You got to put players on the team that can help. I feel mm-hmm. like he's done a great job of that, identifying players in certain roles. So I feel like he's he, he's one of the best at his job. And, you know, and I'm glad that he's our GM, honestly. So. You know, we, we're in a good spot. We, we have a good a good place to go and a good place to build on, you know, for years to come. Because I feel like, you know, you got Claxton. You know, you see a Claxton. Claxton is, um, can be an all-star mm-hmm. type center, you know, because yep. I think he was like I think he was like like fourth or fifth in defensive player of the year voting or mm-hmm. something like that. You know, that's big time. So really just identifying talent, really. So, you know, he, he's a great GM. I want to go a little bit deeper in Claxton because he's been a guy that I've been super high on. I was shocked when he fell the second round. I had him also as I think it was number nine or 10 that year in that draft. And I've always said I was, I was super high on him. And then last year, I feel like, to be honest, he was disrespected in the voting polls. He was a favorite to win defensive player of the year. And I understand, obviously, no more Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving. The tension kind of is off you. But 
fact that impacted voting was obnoxious to myself because he should have at least been an all defensive player. That that blows my mind. No, that he was not on yeah, one of those no question. teams. No question. Should have been first team, no doubt. Mm-hmm. No Absolutely. And so when you look at his game, and I think he's going to make another jump. I've, we've been seeing some yeah. clips. I know it's not game action per se, but we've been seeing some <laughs> clips of some jump shots. If he has that into his arsenal, I mean, we're talking, like you mentioned, all-star potential. So no what's his talent level like? How high is his ceiling? Oh, it's it's high, you know, because Claxton is a great finisher, mm. great finisher, great defender. Uh, and the main thing really, you know, I guess, you know, and, and even he'll tell you is the free throws. I think if he knocks down at least 60, 70 percent of his free throws, that's that's better. That's way better than, you know, instead of like 12 points or whatever he had, that could be like 15, 16. Yep. So, I really, so that's really the main thing with Clax. But Clax super talented, finished both hands and guard the perimeter, guard the paint. And, you know, and, and he's made a real a way big jump from when I came in to now. So that's really, you know, the main thing. So that's really a big thing. You know, his, his, his ceiling is unmatched. Okay. I, w- I want to go back a little bit to LSU because you were coached by a guy in Will Wade who did an incredible job out there. And I know it might be a little controversial, but he obviously had that season with you guys. He was in the midst of another great season. He gets let go. And obviously at that point, okay, we don't know what's going on when all this investigation stuff's happening. So anything could have happened to these coaches. And they mm-hmm. decided to move on part ways. Okay, it is what it is. Now we come out and we see the suspension really wasn't even that significant. I believe it was five or something games that his new program. So when you look at that, how do you feel about the way LSU handled situation with Will Wade? Because he obviously was a great coach. He built that program up to being a team that would I would have been shocked if they were not an annual top 25 type team. How did you kind of feel about that situation? I feel like uh, the school handles, handled it the best way they could. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it, it was only so much they could do with their hands retire, really. So I feel like that's really the main thing. But, you know, I love LSU. I love, I love Coach Wade. You know, I still talk to him here and there. When I have the opportunity to, he comes to some games here and there. When I mm-hmm. when, when I'm near like Louisiana or some, we try to come out to a game or some, or where or like wherever I am. So you know, we still have a great relationship. So you know, so that's really the big thing with me. I love Coach Way. I love LSU. So I don't really have nothing to say on that. Really, your college recruitment came down to two schools: UCLA, LSU. What was the differentiating factor between LSU and UCLA? Like, why did you choose them over UCLA? Yeah, just my relationship with Wade, honestly. Um, mm-hmm. He had a great relationship with my mom. Because, um, you know, me being an old kid, he can't really call me all, all kinds of ways. You know, I got no signal. So he was really, like, you know, in contact with my mom every day. She'll call, like, she'll tell me, text me or something, and be like, you know, I t- t- you know, like she was talking to Wade all the time, every day. So that's really the main thing. But, you know, the crazy thing is just that, I mean, um, UCLA was, like, right there because, you know, Cronin, Cronin's a great coach. What he did at Cincinnati, and I knew he'll he'll turn around UCLA as we've seen. He's you, you know a, a powerhouse again. <laughs> That's really the main thing. So I feel like they were like neck and neck, but my, I feel like my relationship with Wade was much closer and more like and more together than I than I was with um than I was with um UCLA. So like and, and plus I kind of knew what I was getting into. You know, Cronin being a new coach, I didn't really know what I was getting into. Instead of like with LSU, I knew what I was getting into. He's been there, mm-hmm. you know. So that's really the main thing. You kind of hinted at something about Oak Hill, and that's that you guys don't have necessarily the best reception out there, so you couldn't talk to a lot of yeah. people. And I've interviewed quite a few guys at Oak Hill. I know the story always typically, oh, we can't really do it until we're off campus somewhere else. So can you take us to that? Because mm-hmm. I don't think people realize when they talk about prep schools, you know, people don't really watch yeah. them until they're on ESPN or whatnot. Yeah, Oak yeah. Hill is unique. It ain't in Florida. It's not in – LA, whatever it might be, like you guys are mm-hmm. in a place that doesn't have a lot of reception out in the middle of nowhere. 
Can you yeah. take us through living like that for two years? Yeah, it's tough, especially when you first get there. It's tough. You know, your mm -hmm. first, probably say your first month, you're going to feel like, you know, you're ready to go home. You want to leave. Because so, that's how I felt my first, my junior year, my first month. Because, you know, it's tough. But then once that first month ends, you're on the road, you're playing games all the time. You're playing home games. And, you know, we're flying somewhere, play somewhere. We're doing something. We always got games. Play like, we're like 30, 40 games in a season. So that's really mm -hmm. So, so that really like takes your mind off being there as much because you're just practicing school, then go play. So that's really the main thing. You had a teammate at LSU who you've just not been reunited with in Trenton. He's coming in for a training camp deal. Can you take us to that a little bit? Like, how excited are you to have him back with you now? Oh, it's cool. It's just you know having somebody around that I play with. You know, mm -hmm. I play with I play with him before. So you know, he's a talented player. Uh, can dribble, pass, a rebound. He, he can do everything. On the court, really, he can do everything, shoot. So just being that Swiss Army knife for us, really, that's really a big thing. So I'm excited to play with him. He makes the game easier for me as a scorer. So you know, that's really a big thing. So I can't wait to play with him again. You two went through a very unique experience because that was the season after the COVID situation. So you guys have a tournament that I don't think we're ever going to see again. You guys had to go into a bubble. And yeah. I've heard stories that was didn't sound like the most fun. I know there was about a 48-hour quarantine in your hotel room by yourself. Then you got to yeah, go yeah. out and play. But – you got to take us to that experience because this is around COVID time. It's not yeah. a typical basketball experience whatsoever. What was mm -hmm. the bubble situation like when you came to the NCAA tournament? Yeah, it was just, you know, it was crazy. Because um, it, it was like when you get in, you can't leave. You can't leave your room. It, it, was, it was crazy. You couldn't, you couldn't even leave it to leave to go in the hallway. It felt like you can't even go get food, really. It was just crazy. You know, you had to go from point A to point B. You can't do nothing. You couldn't go out, walk. Can do none. So it was like as soon as we had a game, you're in your room the whole time. You know, we have practice. You come back, you're in your room the whole time. You know, you know, you just gotta, you just gotta sacrifice. It was tough, really. You know, you you trapped in a room all day until you gotta go play. You know, and then you play late at night some games. You play middle of the day some games. So you was just chilling all day until you know that time. So it was tough, but you know, it is what it is. So I believe, like I said, it was 48 hours, two days straight of being in your room when you first got there. Yeah. I don't think too many people want to say they want to be stuck in a hotel room for 48 right. hours. So exactly. how did you get through that time? I mean, they had they had uh, like a little smart TV. So just watch Netflix and sleep the whole time. That's really the only thing you could do, Netflix <laughs> and sleep. And so that's really the main thing, honestly. That's all I did. But at the same time, you got to get in the mentality because you're playing on the biggest stage in all college basketball. You're getting ready to play exactly. a basketball game. And exactly. I don't think too many people out there are going to advise the guys to take two full days off of basketball to go play in a game. So Literally. <laughs> how did you get your mentality in the right place? How did you get your ability to go out there and play? Because you still went out there and balled out 57 points in your two games in the tournament. Mm -hmm. How did you stay ready, even though you pretty much were put in the most impossible situation to stay ready? Yeah, um, just – just me being locked in and knowing, you know, what was at stake, you know, because because everybody knows the tournament is a big thing, and you got to perform in the tournament. So that's really yeah. the main thing for me. And then obviously we had practice. Um, we had practice like two, three days, so we so we got getting like a little rhythm again playing. Mm -hmm. But I mean, we were struggling at the beginning of our first game. It's just you yeah. know, I guess jitters or something, <laughs> or just you know being off for a while, just being off for a little minute. But that was really the main thing, just. Just knowing what's at stake and knowing what could happen, you know. And I went out there and showed that, you know, I could play on the biggest stage as well. We played St. Bonnie's um, and a great game. And then we played Michigan. We was right there to, to the end. So I feel like, you know, just, just going out there and knowing what, you know, like what's at stake and knowing what I need to accomplish for my goal to go to the league. And I feel like I did that. 
that's when I officially was sold on you. I already I knew you were going to be an NBA prospect and whatnot that year. But when I decided to put you as a top 10 player was after you go through all those mental struggles and battles you might have to go through because of the COVID bubble, and you go out there and drop 57 points in two games. That's another type of record right there. That's not easy to do, even if it's in a normal stage. I mean, we're talking about March right. Madness legends. 57 points in two games, you maybe get some Jimmer Fredette type stuff in that situation. But you go out there, you put up those numbers. How were you able to go out onto that stage, March Madness, the world's watching you, and you put up that type of display as a freshman in the March Madness tournament? Yeah, just just um, trusting my work, trusting my mm-hmm. work, um, trusting my work, honestly, and just staying confident. You know, you may struggle in a tournament game. The defense is tougher. Defense is more locked in on you. But you just got to trust your work and stay locked in because, you know, everything can take a turn real fast in a in game. All, all you got to do is win one game, one game at a time. So I just want to stay locked in, just stay true to my work and just trust myself no matter what, whether I was struggling or not. I just want to stay true to myself and trust my work. So do you ever surprise yourself? Is there ever a time you go out on the court and you're like, sheesh, I just put up this much points. I just did this. Like, is there ever a time you walk away from game just kind of shocked at how good you just performed? Um, I probably say really just being at Oak Hill, some games, some games I go out there, especially my senior year, I started rebounding more. Mm-hmm. And like some games I have like 30 and 10. And I guess I think one game we played in the Bojangles back, I had like 42 points, 15 rebounds. I feel like that game really surprised me the most because I, at 42 and 15 as a guard. So I feel like that's probably the main game. I'm like, yo, I'd be like, <laughs> just at 42 and 15, <laughs> at 42 and 15 on old kill. So it was crazy. That's probably the main game. I'm like, yeah, I surprised myself at that one. I know we've been t- talking about this bucket getting and mentality for a while now, but another situation involving that has been the summer league. You are a summer league legend. You have the most points ever averaged in the summer league. You also have the second most points ever averaged throughout a summer league time span. So you go out there and you're playing the summer league your first time around. You're a rookie, and you go out on the stage, and you average 27 points plus. What was that first summer league experience like for yourself? Yeah, it, it was great. Um, just being a rookie, you know, you're getting a first taste of NBA basketball. You know, that's, that's everybody's first chance to show the world, like, okay, we're capable of playing on this level. And that's why I wanted mm-hmm. to show, especially being a later draft pick, I got to show a little more. Um, so that was really the main thing, just me going out there and showing that I can score on this level as well and, you know, just produce as much as I can. And then my second year, I mean, that just happened. I wasn't even trying to score that many points because I, because um, Steve at the time, our coach, he wanted me to be more of like the point guard role. So that's what I was really trying to work on and stuff. So me scoring that many points, it just happened. You know, that's just me playing. So that's really the main thing. I mentioned it when I talked about the meme era part earlier, but there is a moment I got to ask you about. I'm not sure if you've explained it off yeah. before, but we know that yeah. you're getting interviewed after the game and, and she's asking a couple of different questions and you kind of just do the laugh, roll your eyes type of situation. Can you take us through that a little bit? Like, was there any other yeah. meaning towards that? Just what, what what all went down with that reaction? No, I wasn't no meaning towards it. Because I, 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 I mean, I feel like he worded it wrong. Or like she worded it wrong and then like made it seem like he was like attacking me some more. Because I feel like, cause I feel like, you know, I was passing that game. I was getting everybody involved. I had like, I had like seven, eight assists that game. And I think, um, and I think the way she worded it was like, you know, he still wants to see this. this. I'm like, oh, I already showed that. So that's why. I, so that's why, you know, the um, reaction show how it was. But I didn't mean on me and mine. I was just looking like, okay, cool. <laughs> so it was more so direct towards her question as opposed to Steve Nash then? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for <laughs> sure. For sure. I'm just like, I, I was passing. Like, I was getting anybody involved. I was making an extra pass, passing the mm-hmm. open guy, getting the threes up. You know, find one, one more for three that game. I was, you know, I was um, really playmaking that game. So I feel like it was just more towards her question than, than the coach. When you look at your two coaches now, you've been you have two coaches throughout your career in the NBA. Steve Nash, the first year and 
seven games, whatever it was, and then obviously Jock Vaughn since then. Mm. What's the difference between the two coaches, just for you personally, like not as a team aspect, but in terms of you, your relationship, the way you guys get along, whatever it might be, like how would you say the two compare? Uh, they're pretty similar. Uh, I have to feel like I feel like uh, you know everybody's different in their own way. So mm-hmm. you know, JV more of the um, how do I feel like he's more of the players coach. You know, he he wants the guys to interact. You know, during the walkthrough, you know, put our input on it, see what see what we go through. You know, see how we feel about it. And then Steve is more. I feel like Steve's more offensive minded, as far as like mm-hmm. you know drawing up plays, getting us in sets. You know timeouts have a play drawn up for us and stuff I feel like Steve is more offensive minded and JV's a little bit more deep defensive minded in, in that aspect so I feel like but as far as them coaching styles and everything it's pretty similar you know same same system and all that stuff everything's pretty similar when we look at the win-loss record obviously Nash had a great record and I know people go out and say well of course he had Kevin Durant Kyrie Irving Benton Simmons yeah. Steve and Harden for a little bit Jock Vaughn the same yeah. situation but there really was kind of a culture change to some extent, I have to imagine, at least when Steve Nash gets yeah, let yeah. go. Jacques Vaughn, obviously, he was already with the team, so he just kind of comes right up on in. And you guys all of a sudden have a great winning record, and we'll get into a little bit deeper what all happens there. But I think it was 18 out of 20, 21 games, whatever you guys yeah. won. You guys were don't you guys were looking great again. They just looked like the team that was yeah. expected to win a championship. For sure, for sure. So how did Jacques Vaughn create that? Was that just a necessary change that needed to happen for the locker room to get going again? Was it just Jock Vaughn is that much better of a coach and you just kind of changed everything around? Or what exactly led to that shift during the season? Yeah, it was just, um, you know, we, we were going through a transition, coaching change, and then he was mm-hmm. just, you know, he was just being honest with us and just, you know, letting us play. And then, and then um, like midway, I feel like we went on that hot streak and it was just us playing together, sticking together in the locker room. And just knowing what we can accomplish as a team, and everybody was playing well. TJ, K, Kyrie, you know, everybody was playing well, so everybody contributed during that streak. You know, it was just a big thing for us. So I feel like it was just him bringing the locker room together because I feel like we did need that change in locker room because everybody was kind of like all over the place at first. Mm-hmm. Like our first, our first four or five games, we was like one and four or one and five or something like that, two and five. I don't really remember. So I feel like we did need that change a little bit, and you know, it helped mm-hmm. us. So I want to go into your rookie season a little bit more. You get out there and you're a rookie, and like I said you're playing on this contending team, and you got not just Kyrie Irving, James Harden, Kevin Durant. You got other guys that are established veterans. Goran Dragic comes in midway through the season. Patty Mills is there from the beginning. Paul Millsap, Joe Harris, even Blake Griffin is there. Obviously not your position, Andre Drummond. But these are guys that yeah, sure. have been all stars. The guys that have won championships. Are guys that have been established. Marcus Aldridge too on that team. Now, these are some yeah, guys yeah. that you growing up, you've seen these guys perform at a high level. So yeah. and you got all kinds of these guys. So. When you head into the season, I know as a player, your mentality is always, okay, I want to be the best. I am the best. That's your mentality. But, I mean, I'm sure there had to be sentences like, okay, wow, these guys are much older than me. These guys are established. We're ready to win. Did you, in the back of your mind, kind of say, okay, I know this might not be a season in which you fought, or how did you kind of approach your your rookie season? No, I, I always approach it as far as, you know, earning my spot. I always mm-hmm. try to earn my spot no matter what happens, whether the coach decides to play me or not. I always try to approach it as I'm going to earn my spot no matter what. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play hard. And training camp and show what I can do as far as scoring the ball, doing anything, so I can earn my spot to be in the rotation. So whatever the coach decides to play me or not, you know that's on him. But I know that I show that I could play in training camp and show I could play from the from the beginning, from the get go. So I really try to approach it as me trying to earn my spot no matter what. Every year trying to earn my spot as best as I can. And you know if the coach decides to play me, he does. If he don't, he don't. I, I just know that you know I put my best foot forward. So that's really the main thing. 
you've got to go up and practice, like I said, James Harden, Kyrie Irving, Kevin yeah. Durant. And those are guys like I said, pretty much I think you'd throw in Steph Curry in that category, Chris Paul maybe. And you'd say the guys that most people would say are the best offensive players or guys, hardest guys to go against one-on-one, most creative players. Who would you say? you got at least three of those guys now you've got to go up against and practice for at least six months to a year, two years, whatever it might be. Who was mm-hmm. the toughest guy out of all three of them to go and guard just in terms of their offensive display and abilities? Yeah, when we play um... – Really, uh, you know, I think I think they're all difficult guarding their own way. As far as you know, KD being seven foot, you're not you're not contesting his shot. Mm-hmm. You just gotta try to try to get it down low as best as you can. But once he rises up, you know, you can do you're gonna foul him or he's just gonna make it. Mm-hmm. But really, really, Kai, because Kai is a uh, shifty, quick, fast, can finish both hands, shoot over you, post you. You know, he he's, he's just so skilled, and I learned so much from him. So. I really like. I feel like for the guard aspect, as far as like you know being a guard in the league, like Kai, it's, it's way hard. It's way harder to guard than most guards. But you know, KD is hard to guard for like you know the guards that get switched on him because you're not you're not um, blocking it, and then he's too too quick and too shifty for the wings and bigs that try to guard him, so he can just get by you, you know, get to his pull up and whatever. So I feel like those two are probably the hardest hardest to guard in the league. I talked about all the different veterans in the locker room, and you could also add in Spencer Dinwiddie now because he's been your teammate yeah. too at the guard spot. Which guy would you say has taken you under their wing the most and really has been the biggest help for you throughout your career, young career in the NBA so far? Yeah, Kyrie. Uh, Kyrie, mm-hmm. for sure. Me and Kyrie are real close. Mm-hmm. Um, we know we was playing a game together, you know, on the road. We always send in, send, send by each other on the plane when he was there. We all sit by each other. And um, I feel like Kyrie really took me under his wing, really. But KD did, too. So I can't really, mm-hmm. you know, both of them, really, you know, we always was close. Especially my rookie year with KD, because Kyle, you know, Kyle was out here and there, and he came yeah. back in the middle of the year. So I feel like my my, my rookie year was really KD. He really took, took me on his wing a lot. You know, I appreciate him for that. You know, we still talk now and stuff like that. Mm. And then, you know, Kyle really took me on his wing my, my, uh, my second year, this past year when he was there. You know, we really got close. I really got to know him. So I really got to know KD my, my rookie year. I got to know Kyle my um, sophomore year. So that's really, you know, a big thing for me. What's the biggest thing you've learned from Kevin Durant? The biggest thing you learned from Kyrie? Uh, just work, man. Just you know, mm-hmm. the work, the work all pays off. But then you know, the thing about them, well, really, Kai. Well, I mean, both of them, really. I'm just gonna say both. Mm-hmm. It's just that they play the game, and then you know that's done. They don't, they don't dwell on it because you know, so many games, and so many games to play. So like, whether they play good, bad, whatever, they're just like, you know, we got. I'm gonna just say. You know, fifty more. <laughs> we got mm-hmm. fifty more games left. You know, it's just one game. Oh well. You know, you play bad, you don't shoot well. And, you know, you don't come back. You know, the very next day or a day in between, you know, you're gonna play again. You're gonna shoot. You're gonna shoot great that game. So it's just, you know, just flushing everything, washing it, and not not doing on anything. I want you to go a little bit deeper into Kyrie because he's a guy that has become a controversial player in the basketball, Twitter, and social media world. And in my perspective whatever person does off the court or whatever might be, we can't necessarily judge it. We, I'm not in the locker room with him. I don't know exactly how that looks like, but whatever mm-hmm. opinion might be based around him and his theology, his whatever might be, I think that for whatever reason, it's now impacts the way people view him as a player on the court, which I don't know how that makes sense in my opinion. I think that he Literally. still is an elite player, and I feel like he gets no disregarded. Doubt. He gets talked about not enough. He doesn't get the respect he deserves because of whatever people's opinions are of him as a person and whatnot. So – you're the guy, though, that's truly been in the locker room. You've talked to him. You've been with him. And we see on social media these people say, he, okay, Kyrie's a locker room cancer. He does this and the third. And I don't know how people come up with that because they're not in the locker room. But you're right, the guy right. with the true answer there. So can you talk us through that? Like, 
what is Kyrie Irving like in the locker room with you personally, just with the whole team, whatever it might be? Yeah, Kyrie's like one of the guys, man. He's like one of the guys. He'd be cracking jokes, um, cracking jokes and all that stuff. I, obviously, you know, it's a certain time and place when he's serious. You know, we got a game, he's serious or just serious that day, whatever. But, you know, Kyrie's just one of the guys, man. He's, you know, he's, he's like my big brother. I'd be, I'd be joking him, clowning him. You know, he'd be, he'd be doing the same thing. So it's really just, he's like, he's like everybody in the locker room, bro. He's no, he's no different than everybody in the locker room. He, he clowns, jokes, you know, he talks, talks to everybody. You know, he's, he's just a great overall person. So I feel like people get, you know, what he believes and what he stands for mixed up with who he is as a real person, you know, mm. as a, you know, as, as a father, as a husband and all that stuff. So I feel like everybody really just gets that, you know, mixed up. But he's just a great overall person, bro. I can't even express that enough. So whenever you guys are hanging out in the locker room, that could go for any guy you, on, on any of your teammates. Do you guys ever get into a thing where you guys just look at, okay, this is what people are talking to me about. You guys make jokes about it. You guys talk about the outside pressure that people are putting on you guys or the outside criticism. Do you guys ever talk about that type of stuff in a locker room? Uh, maybe uh, maybe here and there for, like, you know, his aspect, we'll probably laugh about it. But, yeah. no, nah, we, nah, we don't really talk about it. You know, he, he just leaves that what it is. He don't pay no attention to it. Mm-hmm. You know, he comes in every day and expresses everything that's going on that day in the locker room or, you know, whatever's going on in practice, whatever's going on with the game. So he really just, he really just like, don't even speak of, speak on the media and I don't speak on it either because, you know, I don't really listen to it. So mm-hmm. I really just try to like, just stay present, stay in the moment, just try to like, you know, just have fun as much as possible around him. So, you know, he's just a great overall person. And I, you know, you know, and I always cherish my time with him, honestly, I can't respect that enough. So if you got to give us your craziest Kevin Durant story and your craziest Kyrie Irving story about something they've done at practice in a game, whatever it might be, what would you say that's those two stories are? Uh, my craziest KD story was uh, we played Detroit my rookie year. We played Detroit mm-hmm. my rookie year, and I was in rotation. I was playing, and I had a solid game, good game. But then I think he had like I think he had like forty or fifty that game, and I didn't even know it was crazy. <laughs> like I, I really I really did not know he had that many points. And then, mm-hmm. like, I was walking to the side. You know, he was joking, joking with me, clowning me. And then I looked up. I was like, oh, "Yeah, you got fifty for real." It was just crazy. <laughs> I never, I, I never knew he had that many points. And then, in Kai's aspect, it was just, I probably say, I probably say our Toronto game this past year when he hit the game winner. Yeah, he he was like, yeah, he was locked in that game. He was making everything, pull-ups, threes, and then he got the ball in the game. Because I think that was my first time, my first time seeing somebody actually hit a game winner other than me in person. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's really really a cool thing to look at. So you're two years into your career now, and you've been through a lot of wild stuff. Now, I know a lot of guys have been through trades or whatever that are also young, but we're talking about trades that people are going to always talk about. You go through your first year, James Harden, he gets dealt. You guys added another star, Ben Simmons. He comes in, then he goes heading the next season, and Kevin Durant does his trade request throughout the offseason. Kyrie Irving gets suspended. You guys have a coaching yeah, change. Yeah. Both those guys then get dealt out. You guys have Bridges, and then Cam Johnson and Dimwitty and Dorian Finney-Smith and those guys come into the team. Like, this has been a crazy past two years, and you're still just trying to get adapted to the NBA, but you have had change after change after change after just all kinds of craziness going on. How have you dealt with all of this stuff that's gone down throughout your first two years in the league? Yeah, just uh, just staying in my lane and staying present, bro. Just um, mm-hmm. worrying about what I, you know, and just controlling what I can control. Because if I try to control other things, then I'm, you know, I'm, I'm getting off my path. So really, mm-hmm. just it's crazy because if you look at it, I'm probably the second, second longest tenure player on the Nets <laughs> behind Claxton. So if you look yeah. at it like that, so it's really just trying to stay present as much as I can. 
and just you know just focusing on myself and focus on what I can do control as far as my game off the court whatever so you know whatever we got going on around you know that's just you know whatever else they got going on but you know as long as I could control what I can control then uh, you know I'm all good with me when you go through a streak and, and you had a little bit of a display during your rookie season, but especially this past year when you had your 40 game streak and you had many other outcomes where you came out and you balled out and then you go the next game and you're off the bench and then you go the next game and you might not even play. Then you go and you play two minutes here and there. I mean, I don't know about you. And that's what I want to ask you about, but I know I'd be probably a little bit irritated. Now that would not be the easiest yeah, thing to sure. deal with knowing that, yo, I just put up this kind of numbers against this team. Sure. I could, I got stuff to improve. I know that of course no one's perfect, but like, yeah, I know yeah. I can play at least in this rotation. Yeah. Has that been a, something that's caused you a little bit of stress? Has it maybe made you a little bit like question yourself or how have you dealt with the ups and downs of minutes in the NBA so far? Yeah, I never really questioned myself, but it's just mm -hmm. me being irritated, showing that, okay, you know, I, I proved time and time again that I'm an NBA player. I can play in a rotation consistently, whether it's yeah. starting, coming off the bench, whatever. As far as my rookie year, you know, I showed, you know, when everybody was out, you know, even though he was losing because, you know, everybody was hurt and stuff. I showed I could play. I averaged like 18 that month. And then, then this past year, um, averaging like 30 in a month, just, you know, just really just showing that I can play on this level. And I know I, and, and I know that I can contribute to a team no matter, no matter what. So, you know, obviously you get irritated after a while, but you know, at the end of the day, just try to, you know, control what you control. Like I said before, it's the only, that's the only thing you can do. You can't really worry about that. You know, the coach calls your number that game. You, Call your number that game. You got to be ready. <laughs> no matter what, you got to lock in. Find no matter, you know, like, you know, like whatever you do, you got to be ready that game. So that's really the main thing. Jacques Vaughn was a coach during the 40 game streak, and he's also talked about different things, you know, improve on defense, facilitate the ball a little bit more, whatever it might be. I have to imagine you guys have had a couple of conversations at least, like we go and ask him, you know, like what can I do to get better, what, what not. How do the conversations go? And, and maybe even on a bigger scale now, as you head into your year three and there's a whole yeah. offseason training camp upcoming and whatnot. What does he want from you so that you can get the minutes that you deserve and that you want? Yeah, um, I guess I guess that's something for me to see this year. You know, obviously mm -hmm. that's a conversation we got to have. You know, year three is a pivotal year for anybody in their career. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I feel like that's just a conversation that we're going to have eventually, just knowing what he wants from me, knowing what I can provide for the team this year. You know, no matter what it is, I just want to, you know, put my best foot forward and keep working hard at it and just, you know, show that I can be a consistent player in a rotation no matter what. And I feel like I have shown that no matter what. So like whatever mm -hmm. happens, happens, you know, you, I just want to um, control what I can control. I'm not saying this could be the opportunity and maybe we'll never know this, but we saw the opportunity you've had and what you do with it. If you yeah. were to have the ball in your hands the whole game, you're the guy for whole season, 82 game season, how much do you think you're averaging? Ball in my hand, 25, no doubt. <laughs> easy 25 no doubt easy and, and that's just and that's just me knowing my ability and knowing what i can bring every night because i mm -hmm. feel like because i see like the little stats on twitter some games they'd be like you know when canton plays this certain amount of minutes he averages 30 or he plays you know this amount of games with this amount of minutes he averages 25 so i feel like if i have the ability to play with the ball in my hand make the decisions on stuff but i can average 25 points a game easy no doubt we introed in talking about the offseason. What exactly have you keyed in on? Like, what are you looking to improve on, get better on as you head into year three now? Yeah, I, um, as far as on the court, I just want to keep working on everything. You know, you can never be too good at something on the court, but really just, you know, the shooting aspect of it. Obviously, I can shoot, but you can never be too good at shooting. You always have work on your shooting. Hmm. So that's really the main thing. But really, I really focused on like off the court, getting my body right, being, being in better shape, better condition. 
because you know that's that's a big thing in the league if, if you're in the best shape then you can like it gives you an extra step so that's really a big thing for me i really focused on like the off the court aspect this off season so that's really the main thing when we evaluate the brooklyn nets in 2023-2024 it's a lot different than the past two seasons and it's yeah. honestly in my opinion i almost consider you guys like a mystery team like we don't necessarily yeah. know what to expect like yeah. We see what McCall Bridges did, but at the same time, it's hard to say what a guy does through half a season if, if that's sustainable, if it's not, whatever. It's, like, it's hard to evaluate that. We don't know what Cam Johnson's capable of. You're another player. Ben Simmons hasn't played consistently basketball for about two, two and a half, three years, whatever it might have been now. Nick Claxton, I think, could have another massive jump. And then you guys have some guys. I mean, Spencer Dimwi, you know what he's capable of. Royce O'Neal, Dorian Finney-Smith, and so on and so forth. How do you feel this team's looking so far? I mean, I know you guys haven't had training camp yet, but I'm sure you probably yeah, still yeah. talk with some of the guys, seen some of them. How do you feel about this team heading into the year? I feel good about it. Um, obviously, like you said, we're we're kind of like a mystery team. Like we we don't really know our identity because you know that team that we got together was like midway through the year. Like we was just we were just playing, you know, playing off the fly, really. So you know, we didn't really have a training camp with us, not really practicing because you know it's games all the time. So we didn't really have a chance to go through a training camp, get our identity, know what we want to do offensively, defensively. So I feel like everything was just kind of like throwing together in that aspect and we just had to play as best as we could and, and we did honestly you know getting the six seed playing philly you know obviously we wanted a better a better result but you know that's mm -hmm. just that just is what it is we was going through a total culture change so i feel like this this training camp will be able to um identify what we want to be as a team and who and who we are as a team so like, that's really the main thing so what's the difference between these two teams you have a team that's expected to win a championship lots of veterans on the team yeah. just a couple young guys this team has a lot more younger guys. Now, obviously, I know not everyone's super young, but you guys are still overall, yeah, yeah. generally speaking, young. It's not rebuilding young, but still have some veterans. But just not, even on, not necessarily even on the court. I just mean locker room aspects. What's the difference between the two different teams? Uh, honestly, nothing really. It was kind of like the same thing. It was, it was great vibes in the locker room before, you know, the, the, you know, because those guys were great guys. We was always laughing and joking. Even this locker room, everybody's laughing and joking. And then that's really the main thing. But as far as expectations, I feel like everybody – you know, with, when you have KD, Kyrie, James, or KD and Kyrie, everybody's telling you to get to the playoffs and win a championship. As far as, you know, with this team, nobody's really expecting us to win a championship. So we're kind of mm -hmm. flying under the radar now as a team. But I feel like, you know, if we put the work in, we identify our identity as a team, then we can really, like, know and, and like, know who we are and we can push to be a better team, you know, down, down the long road. So that's really a big thing. So who's the funniest guy in the locker room then? Funniest guy in the locker room? Uh, I had a lot of funny guys in my room. Danny Johnson was funny. Uh, Javon Carter was funny. Uh, my my boy, my boy Ed Sumner was funny. But mm. I think this year, uh, Dayron's funny. Dayron's Day funny to me. I'd be laughing at Dayron. So, Dayron's funny. So I feel like that's really the funny guy this year. But you know, I never know. You know, anybody can be funny. You know, you gotta get around guys more and know and know who they are and just get to know them a little bit. So I, I gotta see. But right now. For me and who I've been around, Dayron was the funniest guy in the locker room for sure. So have you been able to hang out with any of these guys on the offseason? I said, I know Ben's been in the middle of rehabbing some stuff and whatnot, but have you been able to be around you guys? Have you guys worked out much together? If so, which guys have you been with the most so far? Yeah, um, the only thing, um, I think the one time we all went out to Vegas for the summer league, some of yeah. us went out there. That's really the, that's really the only time. For, you know, everybody's doing their own thing. So, mm -hmm. and so I feel like the only time I've really been around the guys was in Vegas and then, you know, Coming up soon, we're all going to be together, be back in New York. So, so you know, you just got to get ready for that. You know, I can't wait to see everybody. All right, so that's guy I want to get into before I let you go is Ben. And he's obviously a guy that oh, yeah. we've seen as 
a guy that's the best defender in the NBA. We've seen him as a mm-hmm. guy as an all-NBA caliber player, an all-star. The past couple of years, I can tell it's not been what he wants. It's not what the team wants, all that stuff. It's been injuries. It's been all kinds of stuff going on. We've heard, we've heard a lot of different rumors kind of coming out now saying, okay, he's pretty much healthy. He expects to be the best he's been, fully healthy, whatnot. What do you think he's capable of? And, and also, at the same time, he's in a way similar to the situation Kyrie. I wouldn't say as much so, but still yeah. a lot of people from the outside are judging the inside with him. What is Ben Simmons like as a player, as a person, and also as a player, and what's your expectations for him this upcoming season now? Yeah, Ben Yeah, Ben is just a great person overall. Um, he's like my locker mate in a, in a real um, arena. So, I, so you know, we uh, sit beside each other. We have good mm-hmm. conversations. I like Ben. And then on the court, you know, Ben is who he, you know, who he was before, all the injuries and all the Philly mm-hmm. stuff, you know, all-star, you know, first, you know, second team, all NBA, third team, all NBA, all whatever that is. You know, first team all defense, second team all defense, all that stuff. So I feel like Ben still has that potential. Obviously, it's been rough, you know, been hurt. So, you know, we can't really judge him for real. And then when he came back, he was he really solid a whole year, technically. So, yeah. you know, it's kind of hard to judge him. So I feel like, you know, this, this upcoming year, he'll, he'll be back. He'll be better. And I feel like he'll, um you know, really help us as a team. So, you know, I can't wait to see Ben, you know, back to who he was before, everything. For this year to be a success for yourself as a team, what what needs to happen for that to happen, and what are the successful goals? Like, what's your goals for personal goals, and what's your also goals for the team? Yeah, go. I mean, go goals for the team. I just want us to, you know, get better every day. Uh, you know, it is a whole new team, so you know, we just want to build every day, step by step. You know, whether whether we are in a funk, you know, losing streak, you know, stay mm-hmm. together and keep playing, and if we're winning, stay together and keep building on it. And then just goes to myself. I just want to, um, you know, just keep improving, you know, mm-hmm. and obviously, you know, being a rotation more and sure. play and have a real role this year. Obviously, being a year three, I want a real role this year and just want to keep keep improving, but really just keep improving on myself as a person on and off the court. So that's really the main goal for me. Absolutely, man. Well, Cam, I appreciate taking time to come on today. I'm excited to see what no, God's no got in store for you this next year, too, man. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. Likewise. Thank, thank All right, you man. for having me on. Of course, you're always welcome on, man. God bless, bro. God bless. We got a couple of topics I want to dive into before we wrap this show up. And one of those is college realignment. So I want to make sure we get into that today. So we're going to jump into this because this is a hot topic, a topic that's been been discussed now for quite some time. And it's been an, an evolution over the past couple of years. All of it eventually lining us up and setting us up for a massive change heading into next season. Now, yes. The Big 12 has made some changes this season, Cincinnati, Houston. You're going to have BYU coming in, UCF as well, joining them this year. However, there are a lot more moves happening the following season. This all started off with one big thing, though. And so I do want to hop up on into the discussion of college realignment, because when we discuss the massive changes that are happening, it's going to change college football. But what I want to start off by saying is this. There's been a lot of people that mention that this is horrible for college football, college basketball, maybe even going to the extent of saying that it's going to end college football, college basketball. No, it's not. Will it be different? Most definitely. But will it be for the better? I believe so. It's hard for someone to wrap their mind around believing that just changing conferences and all this stuff happening right now is going to deplete, change, ruin, whatever might be these sports. By no stretch of the imagination is that happening. I don't see the Big 12 being ripped apart, nor do I see the SEC or the Big 10. What I do see is a conference in the Pac-12, which – had a lot of teams, let's be quite frankly honest, that were not competitive and had lots of games that most people were not watching anyways. And that's, in fact, why they are moving, because the TV deal was not doing well whatsoever. And they couldn't land a good enough deal either to compete with the other major conferences. 
Therefore, there had to be change. And, and why would that be? Well, no disrespect. I think Washington State, Oregon State, two schools I do feel for them in this, pro- in this process. Yes, for those two programs, it is unfortunate. Stanford and Cal in that boat as well, although we talk a lot about it, and there's been a lot of people joking and making discussions about the fact that, hey, we were not really watching Oregon State versus Cal at 12 o'clock Eastern time, whatever it might have been, during the college basketball season. Not many people are going to watch that, okay? Let's be quite frankly honest. But would you possibly stay up now for some UCLA versus Michigan in basketball come 9 o'clock at night if it might be? I think so. And so let's break down some of these maps, okay? We're going to first get into how this all started, okay? The SEC is the very first reason that all this happened. And as we see, there was movement that occurred. The SEC has, for now at least, only added two teams officially, right? We know Oklahoma and we know Texas. These two monster programs came over for football reason. That's why all these changes do happen. Football is the basis for it. Now, applause to the Big 12 and the decision of Mac to decide to come out and say, you know what? We're going to make a program in a, in, a, in a conference that's also going to focus in on basketball. I'm going to dive into that when we talk about the Big 12 more. However, the SEC, we know, is 100% all in on football. That is the primary focus for every move that they make. And as we see, the conference is staying the same, only adding in two mega, bas- mega football conferences, two mega football teams. And so when we talk about Oklahoma, I'll see, we'll see how they compete out there, to be honest. Obviously, last year was not the best year for them. They don't have Lincoln Riley any longer. He is in, he's at USC, which is now obviously in the Big Ten. This program might not do so well when you talk about Alabama, you talk about Georgia, you talk about Ole Miss, you talk about Tennessee if they're playing good, Arkansas has got a team, Texas A&M is a team. I mean, all these teams can play. But Texas, Texas is interesting to me because they are a school that it seems to be on the rise. They have had some talent. They were decent last season. Going to the SEC to the land more players, top recruits. We'll see what happens. However, this was a no-brainer. At the end of the day, every decision that we make, regardless of what it is, will be because of money. The money is going to be in the SEC. Both programs will be rewarded heavily for doing so. That also will help the football programs. And I know some people might say, hey, couldn't they just go to the Big 12 and dominate the Big 12 and make a chance to go to the tournament or go to the playoffs? So just ECU did. Sure, but aren't we talking about wanting recruits? Recruits are what build programs. And if you are in a better conference, playing better teams, you're likely going to land better recruits. So both these programs, it makes plenty of sense. Now, there are countless rumors. I know that the SEC is not done yet. The odds that they add some ACC schools or whatever it might be is highly likely. I don't believe that they're done yet. This is just the beginning. And they started this whole thing. If it wasn't for the Texas and Oklahoma moves, nothing probably would have happened that we've seen this large scale. However, that's not the case that we have right now because they've caused this massive ricochet of events to occur but as i mentioned i think it's for the best and so the schools the conference i want to get into is the big 12 this has been a conference as two years ago whatever it was 18 months from when texas and oklahoma left the conference a lot of people said okay the big 12 is in trouble the big 12 no longer has the teams necessary for them to remain competitive are they going down we saw rumors is kansas going to stay is all these programs going to stay we did not know well your comes in and he lands in originally the four schools in BYU, Houston, UCF, and Cincinnati. Four programs that are solid depending on the sport you look at. Cincinnati all-time-wise is one of the top winning programs in college basketball history. Houston under Kelvin Sampson has been a team that everyone should know based upon the tournament records. UCF is a program that gives you Florida market. That is massive. Florida is one of the biggest booming states in all the country. You need a market out there. They got that job done. And then BYU, you added in Utah, which was a solid market as well. Also, ultimately, we know Utah is now coming in as well. But So you add these four and you get the Big 12 that was down to 10 schools back up to 12. All right, good. So the Big 12 should be able to stay. But Yormack was not done there, and he comes in and decides to end up depleting the Pac-12. You take the Arizona markets, another booming market, a top five 
ranked population state in all the country. And you land in Arizona and Arizona State. Two big markets, both have high potential. When you talk about the depth for both places, Arizona is one of the top football states in all the country. They've been that for a little while now. A top five, top seven, whatever you want to call them, state for football talent. For basketball, they're very good as well. But then you look at the prep school aspect, there's lots of talent, lots of people to potentially recruit for ASU and Arizona. They come to the Big 12, the best basketball conference in all the country. You add in Utah, you get a complete Utah market. You add in Colorado, you now have pretty much the four corners on locks. That is massive for the Big 12. They're currently sitting at 16 schools. I don't think they're done yet either, though. We know the rumors of Gonzaga and UConn coming over. And let me just say, if those two schools do come to the Big 12, we're talking about having a massive basketball conference, greater than we have right now. In fact, I might even go as far as to say they, in terms of basketball, might be a more dominant basketball conference than the SEC is as a football conference. That would be a conference that, listen, you're going to talk about having Kansas versus Arizona on a Saturday night. Then you might get some Gonzaga and Kansas on a Tuesday. And maybe the next weekend, then we're going to go out and we could get Kansas-UConn. We could get Kansas-Baylor. We could get any of these schools interchanging. Arizona-Kansas, Arizona-Gonzaga. The list goes on. When Duke could potentially be in there. We don't know what could happen with the ACC. I know they're exploring options there, and you've got a slew of schools out there that would be intrigued and potentially could come over the Big 12. I'm just saying there are potential for this to be a mecca for basketball, even greater and bigger than it is right now. And so if that would be the case, the Big 12 would be, is going to be fine regardless. Now, they're at 16 schools. They're going to be just fine. Your Mac has done an absolutely phenomenal job at rebuilding this conference. However, we got a lot more moves to happen, and I don't think the Big 12 is done yet. Them ending up at 20 total football schools, maybe even 22 when you add in the Gonzaga and UConn for basketball purposes, that would not shock me whatsoever. So the Big 12 is in great position. And when I do look at this, and we talk about all three, and actually let's get to the other one next because we also have the Big Ten, which has made a lot of moves as well. They came in and they landed their next couple of schools, which has been huge as well. We know about a year ago now, UCLA, USC, they made the big shocking move all the way out to the Big Ten. Then you had Oregon and Washington decide to come over the Big Ten now as well. This is the one aspect where, okay, I understand. Well, now, when you talk about the Big Ten, I do understand this aspect because there is a lot of things that are a little bit concerning in terms of scheduling, traveling, and the student athletes. So if we are going to put some shine some negative light on the train on the college realignment, this is the one area in which it occurs. All the other stuff I think is bogus. But when it comes to this aspect and we look at the map currently, the distance traveling between these schools is quite large, to be honest. When you look at USC to UCLA going all the way out to these Midwest and East Coast schools, and then you talk about having Oregon and Washington going all the way out there. Now, yes, UCLA, UCLA, USC, Washington, Oregon, they're fine. They can all travel close to each other. But the traveling is going to be chaotic. Now, for football once a week, it is what it is. For basketball, though, that could be a problem. And so I'm not sure if the Big Ten's done yet. I know there's rumors of Florida State and all that, so I don't think they're going to – I don't know if there's anyone they could possibly get that goes – in between those schools. So this is the one map that does concern me just because of the fact that these are student athletes and them trying to travel and stay up with school, stay up with basketball and traveling cross country constantly is going to be a little bit chaotic. But at the very same time, you can't tell me that you're not going to be excited to watch UCLA, USC join the Big Ten. When you just look on paper, the matchups that's going to be happening, those are some spectacular matchups that we could be watching. So I'm all for the Big Ten and the move that they have made now because there's a lot of good stuff happening, and I'm excited to see what else they could potentially do. Like I said, the ACC is in flux. They are even talking about right now adding in three schools of their own. They're talking about taking their final two, two of the final remaining Pac-12 schools in Cal and Stanford. Also, SMU Austin is being rumored in there. 
I don't know exactly like that fit whatsoever. That put them at 19 schools, if I'm not mistaken, because they're currently at 16, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but they're probably going to lose some schools, so it might just be a backup plan. But that is a much more complex discussion to get into as to where the ACC stands, what could happen there. There's a massive deal that doesn't enter 2036. There's pull-out deals and whatever. Might, there's a lot of stuff that's going to have to be decided between before those schools come out. I don't know if we're going to get those answers in the next couple of weeks, months, even in the next year, but I think there's going to be some movement in the ACC. So when we look at these maps, though, like I said, here's the Big Ten one. The travel looks a little chaotic. I just don't see why people are saying this is going to ruin college sports. There's plenty of great matchups that we're going to see. And, and what we've essentially created here now is a place that is going to allow for a lot more of a spotlight. We're going to have primetime games occurring all the time. There's not going to be a time in which we don't have primetime games. We're going to get college football of great caliber games from about 9 in the morning Arizona time to 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night Arizona time. It's going to be phenomenal. What I am interested and intrigued to see is obviously the travel aspect for the Big Ten especially. The Big 12, we've already seen West Virginia deal with it, and now they have some other companions that are close by. So it's going to make it a little better. I think once they add in some other programs, they're going to be able to break it up into pods and whatnot. And that will be the intriguing thing too. How do they break these schools up into pods, divisions, sections? I don't know how it's going to be when we're talking about 20-plus conferences for three of them. But what I do love is this. All three of these conferences have now separated themselves from the pack. The ACC, I know, is still in the mix, and, and I understand that. But here we go. Like, that's the Big Ten map, and it just it's. And here's the Big Twelve one again. So it just is intriguing to me because we the ACC is a pro is a is a, is a group of schools that have talent. We've seen in football, obviously, Clemson can do their thing. North Carolina's had a few great, great years recently. Florida State, we know what they're capable of. At the very same time, though. Basketball, it's been slipping a little bit. Jim Beheim is no longer there. UNC Roy Williams is gone. Coach K is gone. Duke, we're not saying these programs are not great. They're still fabulous. Duke has rebounded incredibly. Coach John Shire has been phenomenal. Hubert Davis did get UNC the championship is year one, so we'll see how that continues to grow. But what I'm excited to see now is where what schools do leave that conference. I know Clemson is probably going to be gone. We hear rumors of Florida State as well. North Carolina could be in that mix as well. And Big 12 could pop to swoop in. Louisville, we've heard rumors of. Memphis is in the mix, potentially. I know they would also probably have interest in Florida State if that's an option. Duke, I'm just throwing that out there. Duke would be incredible for basketball. I don't know about football if that's any intrigue there, but that would be great. But the fact of the matter is that we now have these three programs, these three conferences, shall I say, that are separating themselves. The SEC is dominant for football. They're the best. Big 10 is just behind them. And then you have the Big 12. But Big 12 has separated themselves in terms of basketball. And this is why I want to go back to the Big 12 map here because – I've been someone that's been very high on the Big 12 and the moves that they've been making. And I think Gormack has come out and he's discussed this, that he really wants to emphasize the, the impact on basketball. He realizes the global, global aspect and the global attraction of basketball. Basketball, if people do not realize, is regards the second or third most popular sport worldwide. Football does not even rank inside the top 10 of the most impactful and followed and, and love sports in all the world and america football is by far number one do not get me mistaken there this is a football country but if if you find a way to take basketball and pull it out into the worldwide global aspect as the nba has done the potential to earn money goes through the roof basketball is only growing basketball is the second most followed sport in america but as i mentioned it's the second or third depending on the sorts you look at overall followed sport in all the world Therefore, the, the potential for basketball is far greater than the potential is for, ba for, for basketball, for football, my apologies. 
So when you look at it in that aspect, and the Big 12 has made sure that they want to make a dominant basketball conference, and he's already lined up matches up. So we're going to see a matchup happen down out there in, in Mexico this year. Potentially, could there be a game out there in Europe someday? I don't know. China? I don't know. Japan? Who knows? Australia? You never know where they're going to place these games. That Europe? We don't know. The fact of the matter is that there is potential to grow the Big 12 into an international brand. And if that is capable of being done, the next TV deal that comes up for the Big 12 could potentially rival or compete with that of the Big 10 and SEC. Now, I'm not saying that is a dominant for sure answer, but that is potentially a possibility at least. And if that is done, these schools will look like geniuses and the potential pull of a football-based conference is no longer going to need to be done because you could build on basketball and the Big 12 will be in position to have already have those basketball schools. You could say very quite easily that Kansas, Arizona, Gonzaga, Houston, Baylor, these are some of the top conference, top teams in all of college basketball, period. Those could be five of the top. When you look at the top wins over the next decade, those could be five of the top 10, six, seven, maybe even. I don't know what it could be. Winningest programs in the country. We have had the Big 12 win national championship after national championship. And if you add in something like Duke, my goodness, UConn as well, they're in that group too. So you could have six of the top 10 or whatever might be winning as programs in college basketball over the next decade. And if that is done, well, let's just say that's going to be fun to watch. So that is my take on the college realignment. I think that it's being made too big of a deal on the negative aspect. I think, like I said, there is one aspect that we must look at, and it is that traveling distance that is being made clear from the Big Ten conference from the west coast schools all the way to the other everyone else that one aspect is the only part that i look at and say okay that could be concerning not sure how they're going to balance that out work that out however outside of that issue when we talk about is it going to destroy college basketball college football absolutely not there will be absolutely no destroying in fact i think it's going to help grow these programs and grow these conferences and grow the sports of college football college basketball tremendously now i know that people might say well what about the other sports well Unfortunately, you have to look at it in, in, in the light that the conference are looking at. And they look at it from the money aspect. And they are also looking at it for what's going to benefit them. In other college sports, when you talk about college softball and baseball, and you talk about the other ones, I'm not as familiar in terms of those programs and what they're capable of at each conference, but each one of those will still be able to play against better schools. This will be a massive marketplace that is constantly growing, and it is something that I'm excited to see what continues to occur. So there will be a lot more movement happening. I don't think we're even close to this being done yet. I think there's going to be a ton more move that's going to happen over the duration of the next couple of weeks, months, whatever it might be. Gonzaga and UConn seem to be a deal that's heating up more and more for the Big 12 as we speak. We don't know what's going to happen in the ACC. Could Memphis be available? Who knows? But the fact of the matter is I think it's time that we need to truly embrace college realignment. It is fun. It's going to be there. There's no point of going against it, not liking it, because the fact of the matter is that these conferences are going to change. We can't do anything about it, and we had to embrace it. The only way this does not work out is if people decide to stop watching it, and that would make absolutely no sense because tell me, who does not like box, box office-type games? We all stay up to watch the top five, two top five teams go at it, two top ten teams, ranked matchups. Well, you're going to get that a whole lot more when you talk about these new little conferences. We're not going to be getting a lot of these garbage games. We're not going to get some of these games against a top five team and somebody that has only one, two, or three games like Cal has won recently. We're not going to see those type of outputs in games anymore. We're going to get game after game that is of elite competition. We can talk about the SEC. They are very similar to that in football. There's very couple, there's only a couple of schools each year that are not very good. The majority of the conference is at least average, if not above average, to all the way to exceedingly championship caliber teams. When you talk about Alabama, Georgia, they run championships. And that conference has dominated when you talk about NFL draft prospects, when you talk about wins, when you talk about national championships. That is what it is about. And we're going to get a lot more of that action. So that is something to definitely be excited for. 
we're going to have one last discussion I'm going to get into today before we wrap up this episode. And that's going to be the discussion on super teams. This was a discussion that was originally planned following the MLB trade deadline a week ago. And obviously we had a lot of technical difficulties heading into this episode. So we weren't really quite able to get into it until today. However, we're going to get into it now. So when we look at the MLB trade deadline, the biggest thing that happened was the New York Mets, the team that led the entire MLB in payroll, the team that was expected to win championship or, or World Series alongside the likes of the Padres, the Yankees, and, and others. They blew up the entire team. The team was well under 500. The team was not very successful. And so a lot of people were looking at this and wondering, well, how could that have been possible? When you look at a team like Justin Verlander, you look at a team like Max Scherzer, that has the up, the list goes on and on of just elite level all-strike caliber players. Well, the only answer is a similar answer as to what we see with going on with the Padres right now. With the similar answer when we talk about basketball that happened to the Brooklyn Nets, we talk about the similar answer that's happened to countless of these super teams that have formed. Every sport has these, and every sport has an owner that says, you know what, I'm going to open up my book, and I'm going to go let pay all this money to go land a team out of free agency or out of trades or whatever it might be. Now, that might look good, but the problem is this. If you were able to have a team with no holes and you had to star players all over and your owner was capable of, pay, of paying that much money, could that work to win a championship, a World Series, a Super Bowl, whatever it might be? I believe so. The fact of the matter is that when we put these teams together, there is a thing called salary cap, and there is a certain limit that an owner will draw the line and say, okay, I cannot spend any more money. And when that line is drawn, either by the league or by an owner, you are going to be left with holes on your team. And those holes will create a team that is unbalanced and will cause losses down the road and cannot be sustainable. Now, could we argue with the Brooklyn Nets have won if Kevin Durant was behind that three-point line? I believe, or Kyrie Irving was not hurt? I believe so. But the fact of the matter is that the what-if thing is hard to look at because at the end, they did, they did not win a championship, nor did the New York Mets. I don't think the Padres will even make the playoffs this year. A lot of these teams are struggling. Then we look at football. And football is a little bit different because no team can go out and just spend a bunch of money and build a super team. We don't really see that. Um, there's a certain aspect that we see pieces of it, but for the most part, you have to build it. Now the Rams, I think are the closest example to it. And they were successful. They did certainly win a championship. They went all out and they got themselves Matthew Stafford. They got themselves a lot of the guys, but at the same time, the fact of the matter is what was needed to be done was they needed to have a core in place. And even for the LA Rams, there was a core in place. Cooper cup was in place. Aaron Donald was in place. You had a lot of guys in place. So the fact of the matter is, can you build a team without it being built from the ground up? It is possible. But if you have holes, it will not be possible. It depends on how much money you can or an owner will be willing to spend. And likely there is never going to be the amount of money that it would take to do so is almost impossible. Therefore, the way to do it is the way the Denver Nuggets did it, the way the Golden State Warriors did it in basketball. The way that we have seen in football, the Kansas City Chiefs have essentially done it. Like I said, football is a little bit different, so it's hard to compare that sport. But the Chiefs have done it from the ground up. Their core has been homegrown talent. The same thing that we see when it comes to MLB. The Houston Astros, time and time again, they win it. The LA Dodgers, they've done it perfectly. And so when we look at these teams that build it from the ground up, that is by far the best way. You have chemistry and you have to push through. And that's why for so many of these teams, it is a critical component to keep your young core in place. If you let the young core go, you will have struggles, most definitely, without a doubt. A young core, not, not always will it work. Of course not. We've seen many times that that fails as well. But majority of the time, your dynasties and the teams that win a lot are the teams that have a young core, a core foundation of players. I'm not saying the whole man roster, but I'm saying you got a core. The Denver Nuggets, Contavious Caldwell Pope, and Aaron Gordon were not a part of that team when they were drafted. But Jamal Murray, Jokic, and Michael Porter Jr. were. 
as well as a lot of the bench pieces, including Paint Watson, Christian Brown, and so on and so forth. The Golden State Warriors, they did not draft Kevin Durant, nor did they draft Andre Gidala, or those aspects, but who did they, or Andrew Wiggins, or Jordan, or they had Jordan Poole, but who did they draft? Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, Kevon Looney is another guy. Drafting and building your your team from the ground up and building a core is the way to go. And that will, majority of the time, that will be what ends up resulting in a championship for your team. So that is my take on that. And I do appreciate everyone coming in. So this does conclude the very first episode of the Shoe Show. We'll most likely be back tomorrow, but of course, we'll get back into a schedule as well. This day was a special episode. I want to get done at 12 o'clock. Cam Thomas, I wanted him to come on. He was able to get on at this point. So that's why we did it earlier today. However, I appreciate everybody who tuned in today live, who's going to tune in later on. It was an incredible episode. Big shout out to Cam Thomas for joining us, joining me in the very first episode of the Shoe Show. For everyone listening to me today, I'm blessed and grateful to have you guys all here. And uh, with that being said, I'll see you guys soon. All right. God bless you guys.